Hello and welcome to this Thursday stream. Thank you as always for joining me. All right, so I want to jump right into it, but I will tell you if your resolution is all messed up, it's YouTube. Don't forget to turn it up. Now, just a few minutes ago, I, I read a story that was set in England about some grandparents uh, over there in England who had reported child abuse by lesbian caregivers and they were ignored. Their complaints were ignored and eventually the child was murdered by those lesbian caregivers or would-be caregivers, I guess I should say. But there's this thing where they were kind of accused of being, as it was, racist homophobes. Racist because um, one of these lesbians was a Romani gypsy uh, and homophobes because they were lesbians. Well, it, it's difficult not to draw parallels between that and the whole Muslim child rape gang thing that happened and is still to some degree happening, but certainly happened a lot more say 15 and 10 years ago, where that was really rampant throughout England. And for those who don't know, what you had was a situation where Muslim gangs were targeting young white girls and raping and grooming these girls. And more importantly, you had the entire um, media and political sector ignoring it. The police specifically ignored these incidents as well when they were actually reported to the police because the police said they did not want to upset community relations and they did not want to appear as racist because these Muslims were uh, usually of Pakistani and sometimes of Bangladeshi descent. Uh, so that all happened. And so you hear about these stories like this one that I, I just read and I'll probably do like a separate video on that particular case. Um, but I mean, I'm kind of drawn to, to seeing that parallel that when people just sort of ignore abuse, ignore something as as, as important as child abuse, um, it's like, well, what, what won't we justify? And that's what it kind of draws me to ask is, what is the limit to what we will justify, right? And so then you look over at the trans bathroom debate, you know, I'm not really sure that should be a debate, but we're considering it one, right? Where should we, in fact, have, have and encourage men and boys to go inside the same bathrooms as girls as long as they're willing to, you know, pretend to be girls because that's somehow better. I mean, frankly, it's not because at that point you're talking about someone who is not just male, which, you know, most guys aren't rapists, um, but it's not just male, but rather is also um, sexually deviant by definition. And you're then putting that person in the bathroom with the girl and placing her at... Um, well, more vulnerability, right? I mean, because the people who were most opposed to the shared bathrooms saga were essentially sexual assault uh, groups that were trying to prevent that sort of thing from happening because they recognize that this is the sort of thing that is sort of the crime of opportunity, right? Uh, and yet, increasingly, and for some time now, really, we've had this sort of dynamic that, no, you can't criticize uh, the putting trans people in, you know, women's bathrooms, right? Put, putting men in women's bathrooms, let's just call it like it is, or putting men in with uh, female inmates. You can't criticize any of this, else you are whatever phrase they want to use. I guess transphobe is probably the, what they'd use in that particular case. But the thing is, there is no limit to what they will just kind of ignore. And what you end up with when you kind of break it down is a society that's a lot like what you had over in England 10 to 15 years ago with those Muslim child rape gangs that were happening. Literally thousands of girls or tens of thousands of girls were victimized in that system. 
and in a very real sense by the system. Because yes, it was these individual, you know, Muslim child rape gangs that were the perpetrators thereof, but the, the sort of secondary victimization that happened was by a much bigger collective. It was by the, the, the media that ignored it and turned away from it largely, and the political apparatus that turned away from it, and the law enforcement apparatus that all turned away from it, all turning away from these girls and allowing future girls to be victimized, and they were, because this literally went on for decades with groups that were charged with the protection of such people being the instrumenters of the sort of, well, of their persecution, you might say, because those girls would not have been the victims that they were if they weren't let down by those apparatus, by the the, the media and the, and the political saga and the law enforcement, and all of that working together sort of against them. It should have created um, a situation where those girls grew up in or questioning the authorities who were in power over there. I don't know if that actually happened, but it certainly should have. It should have been this is kind of like a wake-up call. Like, this is who these people are, never just blindly trust authority. Um, and of course, now we live in a society where you've got so much tyrannical control from the very top on the rest of us and there's so much blind trust of authority and that's why i mention it because i think we need more people who are willing to just kind of take a step back and instead of take this kind of appeal to authority perspective that so many do it's actually something i was talking about recently with someone but it's like we're moving our entire society in a direction of this sort of appeal to authority mantra where it's like well do you have a phd let's compare degrees and on that basis of who has the greatest degree will determine who's actually right in this argument it's no longer about a sort of search for truth or even the belief that somebody who doesn't have a degree might in fact know something that you don't but instead it's just this kind of comparison of degrees as if that were truth in and of itself, and obviously that isn't the case, but that's the way our society is going, and especially as we push more young people into academia, including in areas which they don't actually need it, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're pushing so many people into the college system who do not at all need a degree for what it is they're wanting to pursue in life, and, you know, good for them, go learn a trade, but we're we're not just mounting them with debt, we're actually, in so doing, creating a society that values that above anything else, and that kind of sees those who are, are not formally educated in, this, in the system of academia as a sort of lesser being. And that's really dangerous because what you end up with is a society like what we have right now, when you have everybody kind of saying, well, we have this top authoritarian in charge, you know, whether it's Fauci or whoever, and because of because of his sort of status as given to us, we have to follow him because we're so used to the system of authoritarianism, because we're so used to the idea of appealing to authority and accepting authority as absolute truth. And that's really where it goes. You end up in a society that refuses to question, that refuses to say, well, it's really about the power of the argument. It's really about the pursuit of truth above who the person is that's saying it. If you had a society that valued that truth, or that valued the truth, I should say, above everything else, then it does, the, the degrees don't really matter and the authority doesn't really matter. Right. Tom says, if you tell a lie often enough, people start to believe it. Yeah, I believe that there's a Hitler quote that's very similar to that. And yes, 
Um, that is the case, and it has certainly been tested um, plenty in the last two years. I'll leave it at that, but it certainly has been tested a lot in the last couple of years. All right. Uh, I, I, let's just go ahead and move on for now, though, because I I heard that the Democrats are sort of abandoning the so-called Build Back Better bill for now uh, because they can't get Senator Manchin on board. They don't have the, the votes without him. And so they're deciding to sort of refocus their attention back on what we previously called HR1, right, which is the election reform bill, or to put it more accurately, it's the bill where they're going to try and federalize elections so that there is no power in the hands of the states. Right? That's what's really happening, is it's a big power grab by the Democrats, because they're like, well, we're in power now, so therefore, from this sort of, you know, stance of, of, of our own current power, we will grasp as much as possible. This is something that Democrats always do whenever they have any power, they just kind of, like, try and grasp more. And with this election reform bill, just to give you a reminder, because it's been many months since I've actually covered HR1, because it had disappeared from the limelight, now to be brought back... They would, with this election reform bill, literally ban voter ID so that no state could impose a voter ID. Um, and that there's something really ironic about having a voter reform bill that bans voter ID because the whole point of voter reform, at least from the sort of colloquial understanding of it, is improving the voting system so that only those who can vote should be voting. And so that the People can't vote twice, and so on and so This is what normal people think of when they think of voter reform. Not these people, though. They're like, let's get rid of voter ID, and we'll reform, wink, wink, the voting process. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it's really difficult to see from kind of any other uh, lens at that point. In fact, they want to, in part of HR1, is to have a nationwide automatic vote registration based on driver's licenses. Well, maybe that sounds okay for you, because you're like, well, you know, if you've got a, a driver's license, then you're then you're a citizen who is out and about and is no. The thing is that in a lot of different American states, illegal immigrants, for example, can get driver's licenses. Like in California, obviously California, you knew California was coming, right? Because in California and in New York and in New Mexico and you know a bunch of the sort of more leftist states. Um, illegal aliens can actually get driver's licenses and it's um, because of that they can also get insurance and so there's it's kind of like this argument there of well should we give them driver's licenses if they're going to be on the road anyway and we can actually give them insurance there's an argument there I'm not getting to it right now but the point is that if you have nationwide automatic vote registration on the basis of driver's licenses and the leftist states um, <laughs> have illegal aliens on the uh, on the rolls for driver's licenses, then you're basically signing up illegal aliens to be registered to vote. And remember, these are in federal elections. Um, so I think you can, you, it doesn't take much brain power at this point to see where that's going. And, you know, at the same time as that, you've got, they want to have nationwide same-day registration in a lot of states. You have to register to vote before you vote and not on the same day. It's like, there's, there's a cutoff. Um, they want to get rid of that because they want to get rid of basically any any checks because there are two groups of people those who just want as many votes as possible from any sort of nefarious uh, corners they don't really care 
And then you've got the people who want to do voter reform as real normal citizens understand it, which is let's make sure that, you know, non-felons are voting who are citizens of the United States. They're not voting more than once and let's, you know, only count them once and so on. And let's make sure that the voting machines are correctly working or better yet, let's go to get rid of voting machines and go to paper ballots. You know, uh, two very different uh, lines of thought here. In fact, when it comes to that, this HR1 would actually make it illegal to clean up voter rolls, as is happening in a lot of different United States states at the moment. There are a lot of states that are realizing, well, let's clean up the people who haven't voted in you know like seven plus years, the people who have passed away. We should remove them because, frankly, you'll end up with other people voting in their on their behalf, especially in those states where they send out mail-in ballots, which I'll get to in a second. So. I mean, there's kind of a lot that just kind of piles on top of each other. At the same time, you've got the requirement that all felons can vote. This was, again, part of HR1 that, you know, in a lot of different states, you've got after you commit a, a, a felony, uh, either for, for a long time, no, so for, so for, either for some time or basically permanently, they have you basically banned from being able to vote until you can get your rights back, you might say. Uh, this would, again, take that power away from the states, put it in the hands of the federal government, and they basically know that when it comes to those who've committed serious crimes, they tend to be Democrats. Anybody who's been to prison will tell you that in the prison, it's like they're all just Democrats, you know? Uh, how about that? Strange things. It's like the, the, the people who are in prisons haven't really thought through the whole personal responsibility stuff very much, and so they're just kind of like, give me free stuff. Uh, yeah. Although, in, in, in some sense, the Democrat ideal is a lot like prison, at least that's the way that I see it, because you have, you know, almost no rights, uh, you have certainly no rights to, you know, to, to like, even, even your speech is somewhat censored and controlled, and of course you don't have gun rights when you're in prison, but you do have free health care, um, and you do, you know, get guaranteed food, which is one of the things that they like to, to scream about, but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, in addition, in this HR1 thing, they've got mail-in voting being nationwide, which is different from absentee voting. If you're familiar with, with the distinction there, absentee voting was specifically if you had a reason that you would not be able to go in on the day of voting. And instead, you know, you could kind of apply and say, hey, I've got this medical thing coming up and therefore I would need an absentee ballot. With mail-in voting, in a lot of these places, they're literally sending out automatic um, vote slips, you know, so you, you can actually vote without people even requesting them. So what you, what you end up is, after somebody moves or dies or what have you, uh, government bureaucracy takes a while to catch up. So they send these uh, ballots out to these people who have moved or died at their former address, and then whoever lives there may or may not decide to fill them in with whoever they wish were, um, were voted in, and that's what happens. Um, and so you, you, nobody ever gets caught for that kind of voter fraud, obviously. It just, it just showed up and, you know, was, was delivered with, so, so it ends up being one person votes, you know, four or five times all these different people who used to live at that address. It happens and it, and it can change the course of elections. Um, but more than that, of course, you have other mail-in problems which happen on a, on a much bigger scale. And we have seen that with, um, trucks and all, but I can't go into all the different, um, Issues there. I think we're probably pretty familiar at this point. But what I do find interesting is 
that simultaneously, the people who are passing this bill, or who want to pass this bill on election reform, also claim that there are no problems with our elections. <laughs> what? I mean, because from where I'm sitting, there are problems with the elections, and there are problems with, with the voting machines, and there are certainly potential problems with voting machines, because we can't actually see what's going on behind the scenes. And I, I see problems when voting is stopped at three o'clock in the morning, and then resumed, and, and so on. And there's a lot that I see, and a lot of reasons that I can think of that you would want election reform. Not that looks like this, let me be clear. But I can see reasons for election reform because I can see problems with the elections, uh, you know, and <laughs> that doesn't mean that a certain election and its outcome is wrong, naturally, of course, you know, hands off here. But the Democrats in this case, the Democrats who want to pass HR1 are saying, A, there are no problems with the voting structure in the United States, and at the same time, we have to take it over because reasons, right? Because, like, like, seriously, what is, the, what is the sort of explanation for why all of the different states need to lose their power to maintain their own elections all at once? Because that would imply that something really bad happened, something really big happened. And thus it requires some major intervention, some major change such as has not happened before. And yet, we don't really see that. We see the, there's a power grab going on, but no official reason for the power grab. <clears throat> okay, yeah, and yes, I, I realize that a lot of you are having trouble with trusting the Republican Party as well. And I am obviously very much with you there. I realize that the vast majority of the Republicans are not conservative. It's, and they're the reason why I basically divorced myself from the term conservative, because I, I can't use it anymore without also providing like a, a description of what I mean by conservative afterwards, because otherwise people just think that I mean Republican. It's like, no, I actually mean that I want to conserve the values that made America good, that made, that made the West good. I want to preserve Christendom. What does it mean to you? You know, and so we end up kind of going in this circle. That's why I've sort of settled on the term traditionalist, so that at least we can have a conversation and people actually listen, besides thinking that I simply mean, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm just a Republican, because that's just not the case. All right. Uh, in one piece of, I don't know, I don't know how uplifting you might find this, but Marjorie Taylor Greene and 13 other Republicans signed a letter demanding the firing of Kathleen Landekin. She's the deputy warden of the DC Correctional Treatment Facility. All right. So... To rewind, you know how the January 6th prisoners have been abused and outright tortured in a lot of these cases, right? They're being held in the DC jails. We know that they're being held in horrendous con conditions. Marjorie Taylor Greene actually toured one of these facilities and met these people on the so-called Patriot Wing and saw the conditions in which they were held and has written at length about the fact that basically they're not being given the same rights or freedoms that other prisoners are given. They're not being given the, the like, even stuff like the access to education. Like if you're in prison, you can actually figure out how to get a GED whilst you're in there. If you don't already have uh, a GED and you can kind of make some progress towards certain types of licensing that can help you when you get out and all of this. Those on the Patriot Wing don't have access to any of that. Um, just 
because like right, reasons exactly um and kathleen landekin again the deputy warden of this facility is a partisan hack and i don't say that lightly uh her twitter feed was full of anti-trump anti-republican um tweets she's obviously ex extremely partisan and yet she's in charge of these people who we know are being abused and have been abused and i don't say that in a way that you know it's just like some some random charge no literally a, a dc judge royce uh, lambeth held the dc jail officials in contempt of court because they were such they were so denying the basic medical care and the basic needs of these prisoners. So when I'm saying that these people are being abused and are being tortured and aren't having their medical needs uh, met, I'm not saying so in a vacuum, and I'm not saying so to be a partisan myself, I'm saying so because it's absolutely true and it's horrendous that more people aren't speaking out about this because they have their own cowardice related to January 6th because they're just too afraid that somebody will call them an insurrectionist for mentioning January 6th and how those men were actually protesters who went there at the behest of the then president of the United States, right? Because that's what we're actually talking about and how a lot of these people who are being held in the, in the DC jails, including to this day, uh, without good representation because they've had their funds seized and everything else, weren't there because they had engaged in some you know, vast assaults or something like that. They weren't there for an attempted murder charges or anything, despite the fact that their trials get pushed back to like the mid-2022 at this point. No, a lot of them are there because the FBI and others have linked them to groups that they do not like. Like the, uh, you know, the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters and stuff like this and the Oath Keepers. Because the, these men have been tied to groups that the Biden administration does not like. Because of that, they're being held with no possibility of bail. Without, you know, they're being held without bail. They can't actually get out and they can't thus prepare a good defense because frankly, who can prepare a good defense while he's being held in those conditions and being tortured? Uh, so that's what's really going on. And I know some people are probably tired of hearing about this. As long as those people are still locked up, I'm going to keep talking about it and I won't let it go. Now this woman, um, Kathleen, again, the warden, or rather deputy warden of that facility, deleted her Twitter, Twitter account entirely after uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene pointed out what a partisan hack she is. But these people are being mistreated, tortured, I mean, it, it's absolutely awful. And you would think, you would think that we had a decent Republican party, they'd all be talking about this, but then we don't have a decent Republican party, so uh, I guess that's why they're not all talking about this. All right, hold on a second, and I'll move on. Um, Hillary killed Epstein, says the Oath Keepers got infested by the FBI. Well, I'm sure they did, and I'm sure all of these groups are full of some FBI informants. doesn't surprise me. When you look at the, um, remember the uh, plot against the governor of Michigan, right? And they were, you know, there was this plot to kidnap her. And it turned out, if you read through the court documents, that the entire plot was invented by the FBI. Like literally the informants in the case were those plotting and then, and then telling other people, hey, we're going to do this, are you going to come along? You know, playing agent provocateur to these people. That's what really happened. The lead people in that case were 
were FBI informants. And it was like a group of like, it, like I think it was 20 and like 12 FBI informants. It, it, was, it was ridiculous. Seriously. And that's what often happens. It's not supposed to happen. That's not the way our justice system is supposed to work. That's not the point of informants, um, for sure. But when you read over the court documents in that particular case, it's incredibly evident that so much of that plan would not have happened at all. Like these men who you know, were dragged in on it by the FBI agents would not have done any of that stuff without the constant pushing and prodding of FBI agents to try and get them worked up and try and make this seem more feasible and all of that. Um, so yeah, the FBI should just be dissolved at this point. It just seems um, like it's just so incredibly corrupt. John Levin said, I only met great people in DC on January 6th. Yeah, me too. I met a lot of good people there. Okay. Um, okay, so as I said, I, I was going to move on. I, I would like to draw your attention to a case in which a 14-year-old boy uh, was murdered in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. And the case hasn't gotten anywhere near as much attention as it would have if the races were reversed. And I don't like to constantly talk about racial topics on every live stream that I do, but I'm kind of inclined to do so at this point because so few others are. Like, and I don't just mean the mainstream media. I mean, I don't think you can tune into the Ben Shapiro show and hear the story that I'm about to tell you. And I think that's an absolute travesty. Um, I think that in the very least, it's our job, and by our, I mean, I just mean the non-mainstream media, to try and cover the stories that they're being negligent about, that they're intentionally ignoring, and especially when they're ignoring it because it doesn't fit the narrative that they want to create about the world in which we live. All right, so in any case, I'll get to it. It's a 14-year-old boy. His name is Ryan Rogers. Here he is, and he was murdered by a black male, and his name is Semi Williams, and there he is. Okay. So this took place, actually, in, on, in November. In November 15th, this took place in Florida. And you've probably not heard about it. But the attacker there has a 16-page Florida rap sheet in addition to assault and battery charges in Georgia. So on November 15th, young Ryan left his home on his bicycle at around 6.39, apparently, p.m. When he failed to return by 10.30, his parents reported him missing. According to court documents, they believe that Williams killed the boy at around 7.30 p.m. that evening. The teen had been stabbed numerous times in the head and in the face, according to their criminal complaint. Now, jailhouse records show that on December 2nd, um, the, the attacker, Sammy Williams, uh, got into a fight with the jailhouse guards, called one a white devil. And it's also reported in court documents that Officer Michael McCabe said, and I quote, while fingerprinting his left hand, I asked him if he understood the charges. He said, yeah, murder, because of what they did to black people about giving them syphilis, unquote. McCabe then added that Williams's voice then became significantly louder, but whatever was said next has been redacted from public documents for now. All right, I'm going to go ahead and turn these two um, off. But this is a story that would have been everywhere, if the, if the races were reversed. And, and I think that we all know that. I don't think I actually have to make that point because, I mean, you've lived in the same world that I've lived in for the past few years. 
Um, and we know how it is when there's any sort of case where a black person is the victim of a white person, regardless of whether the race is involved in the case, in actual fact, right? But in this case, we have actual evidence that the black man hunted down this white teenage boy and stabbed him in the face and killed him. And yet it doesn't have nationwide media coverage. Heck, it, it barely has any media coverage. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to find it and draw it to your attention. And I think that I just, I kind of imagine that if you were the parent of, of that child, if you were the parent of 14 year old Ryan Rogers, you would feel a sense of just absolute disbelief and outrage about the fact that this murder was being ignored uh, by the media because it didn't fit the sort of narrative that they wanted to to promote, right? The narrative that that it's difficult to be black in America because you can't go jogging else people will murder you, right? That sort of narrative. And instead, this is what? You can't go bicycling whilst white. I mean, you know, I can write ridiculous slogans too. Um, but but this is this is why I'm drawing this to your attention because it's like cases like this happen, and then they're buried, and then nobody ever hears about it. And so you know you don't so you're gonna hear the name George Floyd forever, and you're gonna know who that was, but you're not gonna hear Ryan Rogers and know who he was, and he was just 14 years old and he didn't do anything wrong, and it's just really twisted. And in fact, the Palm Beach Gardens police chief uh, Clinton Shannon originally described it as a random act with no discernible motive, and yet, even as more information came out about that, um, here we are. Right? Even as more information came out, you don't have massive groups of, of, you know, massive political groups going forth and saying, hey, you know, this happened, what does this prove? It proves X, Y, and Z. It proves that, that, that there are some black people who hate whites enough to murder them. Uh, none of that. You don't have say his name everywhere. None of that. And so it's like racism is was obvious in this case. It is obvious in this case. And yet you just don't hear about the case because they don't want to talk about this. In fact, they do the opposite, right? They do the whole, well, racism can occur in that direction. That's what we're told. That's what they're told in, that's what they, they teach in academia, that it's impossible for a non-white person to be racist because that's not what racism is. They'll, they literally have redefined the term racism in recent years uh, completely so that if the person who is racist is not in a position of power, then it's not racism. And then they say, well, it's white people that run all the different institutions, therefore they have power in the system, and therefore they're the only ones who can be racist. I'm just spelling this out in case there's somebody around who actually has managed to escape being taught this, and I'm just compensating now, sorry about that. But in any case, you know, here we are. And so when you take that, then you say, well, okay, but what about on the individual basis, even if you accept that? Even if you accept the ridiculous sort of redefinition of racism to, to spin it so that, you know, only white people can be racist. But what about on this level? What about on the level of the 14-year-old boy being attacked by the 39-year-old Florida man? Um, 
Abadan, because then it's pretty clear who has the power in in that particular dynamic. It's like, well, the individual dynamics apparently don't matter, except for when the races are in the other direction, in that case, that they really do. Um, that's the sort of ludicrousness that we're living in. And the thing is, I think that attacks like this are bound to increase. I mean, attacks of the other variety are so incredibly rare that Jesse Smollett had to fake it using his black friends. You know, it, it, it really is uh, such an uncommon event in America to have a violent assault on a black man because he's black. It really is exceedingly uncommon. And the thing is that you, despite that, you have so many different sources at the same time saying that it happens all the time, that you have a sort of growing resentment amongst especially young black people because they believe it. Because they're actually told this stuff. Because they're told about the inherent injustices that are, well, keeping them down, that are preventing them, to have, them from having a sort of fair opportunity, that are the reason for any sort of inadequacies in their own lives. And yes, that causes resentment, and yes, resentment can grow into a passion for violence. And I don't think that we're going to see this go away. We're going to see it increase because what you see being passed around in the culture, is it increasing? That's what you see increasing. You see, if you look in academia and the way that they're covering the racial topics at this point, they're not toning it down. They're going overboard because even as, even as we have a society that actually favors non-whites in areas of you know, things like university admissions and, and job applications and government grants and so on, basically every area where you have racial disparity, it is in favor of non-whites. Even as you have that, at the same time, the same people who are pushing that are, are, are saying, well, you know, it's, it's the white people who are, who, are, who are racist and who are keeping everyone else down while they're creating a situation that is the very opposite of that scenario. Um, Hillary Killed Epstein says, shout out to Justice Smollett for hiring people of color for a non-traditional role. Well stated. <laughs> okay, that was well done, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, Chicken says, how much does it matter whether racism under the academic definition was present if it's the case that anti-white rhetoric has led to black people killing white children who are unknown to them. Um, okay, well, if black people killing white people is, is happening, it's important regardless of the reason, but the definition of racism matters because the whole point is that in our culture, racism has been redefined to say that this cannot happen. Racism has been redefined to say that the whole idea of a black person attacking a white person for racial reasons simply cannot happen. And therefore, there must have been some other reason. And that's what you'll have. They'll look further into this case, and he will not be charged with a hate crime. Instead, he'll be, you know, they'll look at his bad home life, which I'm sure he had, because generally, when people, you know, end up killing people, you look back on their history, and they tend to have um, a lot of problems. And... Oftentimes, they end up having broken homes and, and so on. That is the case. That doesn't, of course, detract from the fact that this was a racist anti-white crime that was also a murder. 
But it matters the fact that our culture is redefining such things so as to deny the truths that are actually happening. Um, it always matters the language that we use and why the uh, why things are being sort of reframed. Because I think if you ignore that, if you ignore the reframing, um, people become sort of blind to what's really happening. Um, Cecilia says, so infuriating, such complete injustice and double standards. Rest in peace, Ryan. Prayers for his family. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I really feel for him. And I mean, what do you even say in a case where it just seems so... Um, so without cause, you know? Okay. Uh, Alright, let's, let's go ahead and uh, and move on. So, there is a... This, this is a story that seems like satire, but isn't, and it kind of ties in with, with, with how I started this show. There's um, an ex-Danish uh, migration minister, a woman, uh, Inga her name is, who's been sentenced to 60 days in prison in Denmark after being convicted of illegally separating child brides from migrant men in 2016. Okay, so I'm going to have to restate that again because the first time I read it I thought must have read that wrong let me go back yes this woman in her official capacity as migration minister decided that she wasn't going to house say 14 year old girls with their significantly older husbands because that would be setting them up for sexual assault inside of the immigration centers right so kind of like how uh, during the Trump administration and during the Obama administration, we had sort of separation to, to protect kids. Well, a separation of families, as they called it. Well, in this particular case, it's even more blatant because you have these, you know, these young girls when these much older men who are migrants from the Middle East. And she was like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to be willing to do that. I'm not going to be willing to lock up because you are talking about in a sort of like semi-prison like environment right in an asylum center immigration center where they're being held this was during the height of the so-called migrant crisis she's like no I'm, I'm not willing to do that and because of that she was actually charged with a criminal offense for separating couples now seriously because she said <laughs> this is how it goes okay the separation of couples was found to be contrary to Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, so, she violated, according to the law, and according to the people who actually, you know, passed this edict, she, she violated the law um, by protecting these young girls and refusing to house them with these with their abusers. I'm just going to go ahead and call it how I see it. That's what she did. She was like, I'm not going to put these, these young girls in this situation and imprison them with these men so they can basically be um, raped, as we would call it, you know, in any Western civilized country, so they can be raped inside of these prisons on her watch. So she did the right thing. Um, and for that, she has been tried and found guilty and it, it kind of it, it pulls into perspective a sort of concept that I think is really important. I think we've sort of lost grasp of today in our society. And that is the sort of distinguishing marks between what is lawful and what is good. Because we always tend to hope, we always hope that, that our laws are designed such and done well enough that we have them as sort of 
moral markers that we can trust the law to be an instrument of virtue of sorts, right? So that they kind of line up with the moral values of our society. And that's not always the case. And sometimes the right thing to do is to ignore that particular law. And she actually saw that. She saw that there was something more important. This was a, in the very least, it was a misapplication in, that, in this particular case, or would have been if she'd have, you know, housed these girls to be raped by their abusers. So, um, and it's so rare now that you can actually see people who, who kind of see this concept, who see that there is something greater than the law. And it seems kind of funny because I'm saying this, you know, after two years of a COVID uh, lockdowns and after churches were shut down and people were prevented from, you know, <clears throat> well, holding church services and feeding the poor and all of this sort of stuff. And so I, I guess you could say this is probably one of the best times in which I could make this case. But there is a point at which there is a higher good, you might say a higher calling or perhaps even a divine calling to do something that's better, that's more important. Because there are things that are more important. And as I said, I think it's quite clear in this case that she did the right thing. Um, and yet, she's being sent to prison for it. And this would be an argument, like in this country, you could perhaps have something like jury nullification take place. And that's something that doesn't really exist elsewhere. Hold on. Um, because jury nullification, like whenever I explain jury nullification to somebody from a different country, other than the US, they get kind of either confused or outright horrified, uh, which I think is amusing. But it's like, with jury, with jury nullification, you kind of have the jury as sort of like the, the last line of defense that could stand there and say, well, actually, the law in this particular case is being misapplied. Or we just don't like this law and we're not going to enforce it. And that actually has power. And when I tell this to, especially Brits, because I, I have more contact with Brits than any other like European um, group. But whenever I tell Brits about this, they just seem absolutely horrified about the, the entire you know, perspective of that. And of course, in a lot of British cases now, increasingly, you don't even have a right to a jury, which is another topic altogether. But it's this concept of jury nullification, which is incredibly protective in American law, because even if you have a overly aggressive prosecution, and even if you have a law that should never have been passed, if you think that what you're doing is the moral duty and is more important than whatever happens to be written down, you can, you can go before a jury eventually and charge with that crime and make your case to them that this matters more, that this was the most moral thing that you could do. Um, and that's why you did it and have a chance, you know, it's 12 people at random and I don't know how, you know, how moral your particular 12 are going to be, right? But you would have a chance of convincing them and in so doing, regardless of the, of what the actual law says word for word, still coming away as a free man or woman, you know, <laughs> and that's, and that's kind of a, a really novel concept that you don't see anywhere else around the world and which she could have actually used, um, this particular um, Danish minister could have actually used. But, you know, I, I do, I do want to say though, this is the thing, it's like, I, I come across so many now, again, especially Brits, who are like, but the law, 
And when you look at um, some of the ways that Australia and, and Austria have kind of collapsed in the last year or so in terms of human freedoms and in terms of just like how incredibly tyrannical the government has been, it's like at a certain point over there, those people would have to say, okay, I don't care. Like, I don't care what edict is passed. I don't care how you passed it. I don't even care if you went through every, you know, checked every dot. It doesn't really matter because ultimately we have God-given rights. And no, you can't tell us that we can't step out of our homes because we're prisoners until you say so. And you can't tell us that until we take certain medical procedures that we don't have rights and we're not basically human beings and we're subhuman to you. And you can't tell us that we don't have the freedom to travel, that we don't have the freedom to worship, we don't have the freedom to go to church. At a certain point, people stand up, or ought to, and say, we don't really care what this particular law is. And when you look throughout, you know, the, heck, if you just take the 20th century and the different sort of barbarism that took place, very often it was, you know, okay. It, as far as the law goes, it was lawful. And yet, you know, we we're talking like genocides, you know, because they were committed by the government, right? They were, they were, they were democides. They were committed by the government against their own people. And therefore, because you have the government doing it, then how could it be unlawful? And so what I really think we need to pay attention to is to really have people think, that there has to be some higher ideal, some some higher good. And I think it's why that you have so many different secular societies that just sort of implode. Because you end up having people who who can't possibly see any sort of thing greater than government, because what could there be? Like, if there is no God, then all you have is government, and government becomes your God, becomes sort of deified. And at that point, your society will fall apart. And, ha and it has happened, but it'll fall apart in a really catastrophic way that's horrendous for the people who live within that society. It's not like it will just, you know, disband. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sort of moral decay and degeneration that, you know, has taken place, you know, in civilizations of the past, which no longer exist, and also in civilizations of the present that, you know, are barely civilizations at this point who are falling apart. And, and you know, even you can look to something, you know, like England, you know, because I'm just kind of poking at England tonight, I realize, um, and the sort of erosion of, of human rights that has happened within the past sort of 20 years to where there is no longer sort of the, the right to self-defense and the right to free speech uh, and the right to, you know, educate one's own children is being evaporated as well. And that's the sort of hellscape you move toward when nobody's willing to say, but what about our God-given rights? doesn't really matter what you vote upon you know we actually have a god-given right to speak freely and a god-given right to worship freely and the right to worship freely includes the you know willingness to say things that are you know in the bible for example that the government may not like and we've seen a lot of you know british pastors and so on get arrested and that's why i mentioned that you know in reference to passages about how homosexuality uh is forbidden and stuff like that but Without an acknowledgement of the sort of God-given rights, everything falls apart. Anyway, I'm going to move on. <clears throat> DeSantis in Florida has introduced the Stop Woke Act, 
in which he pledges to ban critical race theory. Now, this is actually, it's a start in the right direction. It really is. I do, I am surprised that, you know, you don't have, okay, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Maybe, maybe just cowardice is, is just so common now. But it, DeSantis is doing really well in coming forward on important issues and standing out. And he's getting a lot of support from, you know, more traditionalist people. You know, from what people would uh, uh, normally call conservative people, right? Uh, throughout the country, he's getting a lot of support from Republicans for actually speaking out about these important issues when it, when it comes to COVID or when it comes to these anti-white um, academia, right? And you would think more people would copy him, that other Republican politicians would be like, well, he's he's kind of, you know showing us the way, so to speak. Let's go ahead and follow him and maybe create a movement. That's what I'd actually like to see, is more of them say, well, you know, like you're not going to be the first mover because you're kind of somewhat cowardly yourself. You would at least think these people would look at DeSantis and go, okay, so that's doable. You know, we can make that, that, we can make that choice, we can fight that fight and get support from good people, therefore let's do that. You would think that you'd have more of that and instead it really does seem like DeSantis is one of very few people who are talking about the most important issues. Um, DeSantis also said that the legislation will defund any money for K through 12 uh, going to critical race theory consultants. So including basically the people who are writing the um, anti-white doctrines that are being taught in schools, uh, they would stop receiving government funding, which I mean, <laughs> you would think that would be pretty obvious. But in any case, that's that's part of the bill. Also, the so-called Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees, otherwise known as Woke Act, allows parents uh, to file lawsuits against school districts that are teaching critical race theory in violation of the law, and also to recover the attorney fees when they prevail. So it would actually kind of incentivize parents to pay attention to what their kids are being taught because then they can actually get a payout you know if things go that way so so it basically you find out that secretly your kid is being taught is being taught critical race theory or however you want to call it right anti-whiteism or, or whatever being taught to sort of hate the history of the west and uh being taught that all the basically the central white figures of western civilization were in some way bad and marred and therefore they should feel ashamed of their own being and ashamed of their history and sort of live in denial of their own identity. Um, if that's being taught to your kid, then you can pay attention and you can actually sue the school district. Um, right? Uh, but anyway, I hope it happens. I hope it happens. Uh, okay, St. Miles is kind of going back. He says, my experience with Brits or Britons is that they're a bureaucrat type of personality. Well, they've been raised inside of a monarchic system in which they've been very much taught that thing that I was talking about earlier. You know that kind of adherence to authority? Well, with their sort of aristocratic um, love built into society, I think that that's it's kind of an extension of that. It's like you, you're kind of taught, I think, at a, at a pretty early age about the, the structure of society in a way that doesn't exist in America. In, in America, it's much more meritocratic by by nature, just sort of like intrinsically it's much more meritocratic and that lends itself more toward 
uh, fighting against illegitimate authority rather than accepting that certain people were just born into a certain family and a certain class, and therefore you should listen to them on the basis of that. All right, um, going going down here. Um, okay, all right. I, I was just kind of reading through your comments and seeing if there's anything that I should kind of you know deal with. Um, the San Francisco governor actually, um, she has taken a very opposite approach to what she took early in 2021. See. She was a woman, London Breed is her name, who wanted to defund the police, right? That was kind of her, her whole shtick for a long time because Butler's Matter protesters demanded that cities defund the police. And so she was like, yes, we'll be one of the first, you know? She, seriously, that was, that was her thing. It was like, well, okay, San Francisco will be one of the first to do so. And she sliced 120 million from the budget of law enforcement in San Francisco. And believe it or not, crime rate spiked. I know, I know you're shocked. And, you know, this isn't even to say that, you know, I have widespread approval of law enforcement. I've been very critical of these cases where um, law enforcement have violated people's rights, uh, especially in regard to the sort of COVID enforcement and all of that. That said, I don't think you can um, survive without any uh, law enforcement whatsoever. And these people are just kind of, um, it's like, they don't have a sort of problem with the unconstitutional edicts that certain police are following that's that's not what they're interested in they actually wanted less enforcement of things like you know like investigations into assaults and thefts most especially that was the sort of black lives matter thing was like well just leave these people alone after they commit crimes and so now uh, after after this whole thing about her cutting back law enforcement in the city and crime spiking, she's now, she said, well, the, the law enforcement officers there in San Francisco need to get aggressive and be less tolerant of all the BS. That's what she said, less tolerant of all the BS. It's like, um, but she got rid of them, you know? It's like they're not being, being tolerant necessarily except for in following the ridiculous California laws, including in San Francisco, but rather they were just literally less. They're literally just fewer police officers and they have less funding. Uh, but it's like, okay, so they reduced funding. Just just, just slow down and go, okay, so they, they reduced funding for Black Lives Matter. So now that we're, we're here and we're at the, end of the, at the end of the year, after we've seen the results, which is a 15% increase in homicide compared to last year, it was a 9% increase in assault and a 17% increase in larceny theft. So now, why are, we, why are we scaling back? I mean, why are, we, why are we doing the opposite? Why are we saying, let's bring back the law enforcement? Do black lives suddenly not matter? Or is the erosion of police not resulting in a betterment for, for black people? And by the way, that $120 million that she redistributed, yeah, she didn't just take it away from law enforcement, she redistributed it to uh, black causes. So, um, yeah, and I'm not joking, that's, that's literally what she did in order to sort of placate Black Lives Matter. In order to please them, she's put it into black causes, which is another way of saying that she said that, well, basically, we're going to take this money and avoid using it to help any white people who are around. 
Right. We used to find that kind of thing horrific. And in fact, if she were, you could say, targeting any other race, or saying, you know, not that particular race, avoid giving the money to them, uh, you'd have a collective outrage. But she's avoiding white causes, giving specifically to black causes, which is considered to be okay, or considered actually to be good and in some way noble and in some way virtuous in today's world. <clears throat> um, the rich are being affected, that's the reason. Well, yeah, I think it has reached a point where it's, it's also just an absolute embarrassment because you see these videos of uh, stores in San Francisco area just being sort of like emptied by these groups because they're not enforcing and they're not actually charging the people who are responsible for this ever since they raised the amount at which they would charge these people with felonies to something like $900. And so they just send multiple people in one after the other to steal whatever they can that's under $900. And then they just kind of rack up. Um, so you got basically gangs, like literally just arranging this stuff around Californian policy. And it's like, oh, is that surprising? that they would do that? Because some people just act like legitimately surprised and I'm just, I, I do not understand. Oh, by the way, totally different topic here, but Elizabeth Warren actually wrote about packing the Supreme Court in the Boston Globe. So I think we can expect a lot more attention to kind of come to that issue, if we can call that an issue, uh, in, in the next few months, most likely. And it was incredible the way that she wrote about this issue because it's like she, she knew exactly what she was doing it's like if you ever kind of come across one of those statements where somebody says one thing and you know that what they mean is exactly the opposite um yeah it, it was it was really like that she said quote yeah i'm gonna quote her for this some oppose the idea of court expansion they've argued that expansion is court packing that it would start a never-ending cycle of adding justices to the bench and that it would undermine the court's integrity they are wrong and their concerns do not reflect the gravity of the Republican hijacking of the Supreme Court, unquote. Now, is that not some doublespeak or what? I mean, seriously, she just exposed um, why the court packing would be a bad idea and how it would create a never ending cycle. Because what would happen, you know, if you have Democrat power now and they add some justices and then, you know, you have the Republicans take over and they add some justices to even it out and so on. And it goes on and on. That's what she's talking about. Yes. And of course, it would undermine the court's integrity, because what you're saying is that they're, in fact, a political body, so much so that she needs her people on the team. And they were never supposed to be a political partisan body. They were supposed to make sure that the laws that are on the books aren't in violation of people's rights and, and, and of the Constitution itself. That's what they were supposed to do. And back in the day, you didn't have these splits um, when it came to, you know, justices nominations, because it wasn't considered such a partisan thing. It was, well, does this particular judge, you know, then a judge, soon to be justice, actually care about the enforcement of the Constitution, or the defending of the Constitution, uh, or not? That was the question. Nowadays, it's, well, how did the, how's the person going to vote on this case, and this other case? And, and how long would it take for, them, for the, the court to hear one of these cases, if they had, you know, 50 justices on it. Like, how long would it take for them to, to, to come to a consensus there to decide what they want? Like, like 50 years? I mean, seriously. It, it's absurd. And she knows that it is. But, but how many does she want? 
How many does she want to add? Four. Why, why does she want to add four Supreme Court justices? Um, well, that's pretty obvious. It's because Warren adores three. She likes three justices of the current system. She abhors six. So if you add four to the three that she likes, suddenly she's got a majority of the people that she likes on the court. That's it. And at the same time, she's talking about Republican packing or Republican hijacking, I'm sorry, of the Supreme Court. It's like, look in the mirror. I mean, seriously, the audacity of her to complain about Republican hijacking of the Supreme Court a while at the same time saying, I need just as many justices on the Supreme Court as will give me a majority. And that's exactly what she did. And she's, I mean, let's be honest here, she's especially mad because of the recent cases that are before the Supreme Court, which have um, large implications for such things as abortion and whether or not Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Um, that's it. She's mad about that, as are most of the Democrats. And so because of these different individual cases that she's particularly mad about, that the Democrats are particularly mad about, they want to change it. They want to just, well, we'll just fix it. We'll just sort of reinvent the court until it's another sort of legislative branch, because eventually it will be, right? Because, you know, there's nine now, but, you know, if they keep adding to it with each sort of uh, turnover of Congress, then who knows how big it could get? And they don't care. They don't care that it would make the American sort of I don't want to say the American government because it, you know, it, it's not, it's the judicial branch and everything, so it is kind of separate. But I, I think it would make the the justice system, I guess you could say, seem even more unfair to regular Americans. It would undermine the faith in the system to regular people, and it ought to, because at that point you're talking about an unelected by the people um, legislature that gets to rule on everything, and that chooses its ruling on the basis of partisanship. I mean, I mentioned Roe versus Wade a minute ago. I mean, it doesn't really... I mean, that case is just so obviously... If you, if you look at the, the Roe versus Wade case and the way that they basically rewrote the meaning of due process to mean you can, you can have an abortion, it doesn't make any sense. But it was partisan hackery. And you should never see that from a court... You know, it, it's bad enough when you see it, you know, passed in different laws and so on, but that, that's just the way that it's going to be with the legislature. Can you at least kind of aim for some degree of purity in that particular court, especially given that you do have lifetime appointments? Well, no, apparently not. And so what I do think is that you're going to have a lot more um, pressure on, on this topic. I think that what, we, what we're starting here with Elizabeth Warren penning that piece in the Boston Globe is her preparing to sort of push this issue forth. And, you know, she's actually a, a pretty influential person in Congress, so you're going to have others who jump on it as well and who decide that this is, this is the issue. And especially if the Supreme Court rules wrongly from her perspective in the, you know, the Texas case and so on in, 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 regard, in regard to abortion, because that's their sort of big issue at this point. By the way, I generally don't talk about abortions on, on live streams because it's kind of a um, very specific topic that I think should be, be dealt with very carefully. And, you know, be careful about your speech and all of that. And um, it's not something I can joke about. 
But the uh, in Ireland, they just voted, the, the Irish government voted against pain relievers for infants who are, you know, children in the womb, who are aborted, who are, you know, able to feel pain during their abortions. That was a vote of 107 to 37, with 107 saying no pain relief. And it's very difficult to find any sort of justification in that. Like, it's very difficult to look at a case like that and even see the rationale. Because in the, in the American abortion debate, it's about when does life begin, right? And you had this sort of rationalizations, well, there's no heartbeat yet, and there's no brainwaves yet, and all of that. And, and you know, you can, uh, you can go there. But when you talk about this particular case over in Ireland about whether or not there should be pain relief, for these, uh, for the unborn in this particular case, it's like, what's the argument against that? And I watched some of the footage of them arguing, and I could not hear a single argument against it. Like, that they were arguing, well, it denies compassion to the woman. It's like, how? And that was never spelt out, just the compassion to the woman. It's like, that's not a thing in and of itself. Giving a, you know, a pain reliever uh, to the to the infant that you're about to kill is not um, denying compassion to the woman. It makes no sense. The arguments make no sense. Like they have to be in pain. We mandate that the babies have to be in pain. It's like some kind of weird sacrifice to Moloch or something. But you know, it was Justice uh, Sotomayor who recently said in a Supreme Court ruling that she said, I don't think that a response to or by a fetus necessarily proves there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. So you already kind of have the American left going the same way. Like, there's not real pain. They're just, yeah, exactly. Even though when we do, um, when we do surgeries, uh, you know, to actually help uh, babies who are in the womb, we give them fetal anesthesia because medicine recognizes that they do in fact feel pain. Um, and by the like, Irish law, animals are required to receive pain relief before operations, they're required to get anesthesia and so on because they care more about animals than they do about children. So yeah, that, that's, it's an amazing topic. When you kind of get into the sort of arguments that they go and the lengths that they go, it really is uh, perverse. Harati says abortion is a religious sacrament to the left. It, it seems it seems like it. It really does. And the more that I kind of cover some of these topics, like this one, it's just like, how do you even justify that? Like, seriously, when you're talking about them actually feeling pain or not, and that's that's the only, um, you know, argument there, it, it's crazy. Let's see, Zimbo says, what they're arguing is that the baby doesn't feel pain, otherwise they would have to accept that the baby is alive. But you would think, that in the very least, they'd be like, well, just in case, Right? Just in case we'll go ahead and do this. And moreover, it would that argument that they don't feel pain flies in the face of all of the different scientific and medical knowledge, trust the science, um, that we have. Hence why, when we're doing an actual life-saving surgery on these infants, that we do give them anesthesia because we recognize that, well, they're alive and that they feel. And, you know, you can watch some of these and I, I don't actually recommend that you do, but if you watch one of these videos that's like a late-term abortion, you actually can see the uh, infant move away from the device that's about to um, kill them. And that's just kind of jaw-dropping, that, that A, that that happens, 
and B, that somebody would continue um, with that procedure after seeing that response that so obviously proves life. It's, um, so yeah, okay. Uh, let's move on. All right, I, we're, um, it's getting late, so I, I do want to go ahead and wrap up the stream soon. So if you have questions, if you have topics that I haven't covered that you would like me to cover, go ahead and put them in the chat and I will do my best. And whilst you're doing that, I will talk about something else that's a little bit more lighthearted. I know that's hard to believe, right? <laughs> After that one. But Senator Ron Wyden, who's a Democrat, right, from Oregon, he published, he blocked a bill that would ban goods that were made using forced labor in China. He was like, he refused to, um, you know, to sign on to this bill, to, to agree to this bill. And after it already passed the House, and so they're trying to put it through the Senate, and he's like, no, no, he, he won't go. And his official reason was that he wanted Marco Rubio to tack on an unrelated extension of the child tax care credit, or child tax credit, sorry. That was the official reason. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. They could have done that separately. And frankly, child tax credits are something that generally Republicans and Democrats agree on. So what was really going on? Well, according to the Daily Caller, they uncovered that top Nike executives gave more than $60,000 to Wyden's re-election campaign over the course of just like 16 days in September. So, so the guy who blocked a bill that, again, would ban goods that were made using forced labor in China received $60,000 from Nike. And this is, of course, Colin Kaepernick's big sponsor, you know, because that's, that's a bastion of morality right there. Uh, that, that, you know, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, I guess. Um, it, it really is. It's kind of hilarious at this point, the way that Nike just kind of keeps coming up with these different slogans and they keep putting out these different commercials to be like, well, we're just so moral. You know, uh, you pay, pay attention to us and we are sort of like the leftist company that virtue signals, because that's what you know leftists like to do, like point out their own sort of virtuousness. That's kind of modern leftism without any real virtue, but regardless, and, and without even looking in the mirror. Because if you're Nike, I mean, you're, Nike has been one of the companies over the past, like, what, two, three decades at this point, and there's kind of one expose after another of Nike sweatshops. And yet you have them, virtue signaling constantly, then giving money to a Democrat senator um, who then goes on to block a bill that would prohibit forced labor. And with, with forced labor in China, it was specifically uh, in regard to the Uyghurs, or the Uyghurs, depending on who you ask as to the pronunciation there. But in any case, it was in, in regards to that specifically. But there are actually lots of different types of forced labor going on in China. There's the uh, people who are arrested for religious reasons, um, you know, including Christians, but also including Muslims, because the Chinese government does not want a competing religion against its state religion, which is what I was talking about earlier that upset several of the Brits in the chat, um, is the fact that you have a sort of love of state um, that appears and is and is in many cases sort of nurtured by the state after a while in these communistic structures where they want the society below them to worship them and to see them as the ultimate good. And a, and a religion will will counter that because a, a religion will say no, there's this other there's this other ideal, this other force. Um, 
you know, obviously I, I would I would favor Christianity in that particular regard uh, for obvious reasons. But in any case, from the Chinese government's perspective, any religion that has a, you know, a deity, so any religion, um, is going to be a threat. And so they've been kind of taking people up and then putting them in, in prisons and then literally stealing their organs. That's the Chinese government. And it's one that it's incredible we continue to work with. You know, this is our biggest trading partner. And it, it really ought to go down as just a, an incredible crime that we still trade with them the way that we do. When they build their prisons, when they have these camps in which we, we literally know that they have mass graves, we can see them from space. Um, it's that bad and we're just ignoring it and pretending it's not a thing as they harvest organs to such a degree that if you want an organ transplant and you want to get one over in China, you can book a day in which the organ will be available. That doesn't happen in the United States, it doesn't happen in Britain, it doesn't happen in Europe, because you don't know when someone's going to die. So you don't know when an organ is going to be available. But in China, they know and they'll schedule it for you. And so many people just kind of, and especially in our political class, I mean, perhaps for money behind the scenes, it's pretty easy to, to kind of see that happening in some of these cases, but we'll just literally turn away. And our entire sort of infrastructure is built on on this blood, right? And, and is built on, 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 the, on the absence of, of, of our own sort of self-reliance. In other words, if you try and purchase goods that are made anywhere but China, it's a much harder task than you realize. Like seriously, spend a month trying to buy everything from any country other than China. I'm not saying try for US made, even though that's the ideal, I think small businesses should be supported, but that's too hard. Just try not China. And you still can't do it. You know, it's the most basic items that you'll find. And you can find one company after the other and they're all making stuff in China. And that doesn't even get to the fact that our drugs and our food supply are tainted by China as well. <laughs> that could be taken a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, there are vaccines that are made in China. There are uh, drugs, including like mainstream drugs like painkillers and antibiotics that are made in China. And then there are foods and especially there are uh, the sort of preservatives, that kind of thing that go inside of foods, stuff like sodium benzoate, stuff like cornstarches that go inside of all the different processed foods. And so that if you had the Chinese government, who is not a friend, if that wasn't clear already, that wanted to sort of poison the United States all at once, it would be very easy for them to do so and very difficult for us to catch it until it was way too late. Um, that's the sort of honest situation that we're in and that few people realize it. And then at the same time, the Chinese government makes sure that we have a reliance on them by doing a sort of currency manipulation by which they subsidize exports, which is not legal, but they do it in any case. And so what happens is that you have a company, right, over in China, and they're producing some device, let's say, and they can, they can produce it at cost without any profit margin, because then as soon as they start selling it outside of China, in other words, export from China's perspective, the Chinese government will subsidize that, and therefore the company could make a profit where no other company in the world could make a profit from selling something at that particular cost. And that is one of the ways in which they undermine 
the American economy and frankly the economies throughout the Western world. And that's in addition to the fact that they're hiring people, and I say hiring, which is often in a, in a sort of slavery situation, either because they're just paying them really poorly or because they're using actual prisoners um, for their labor. And, and children, of course, as well. Okay. Um, I guess we should probably round it up then. I'm just going to go ahead and take a quick look through your comments to make sure that I didn't miss any uh, any big questions because I did tell you to type them out and then I went into a rant against China. So I, I might have uh, missed it. Um, top secret bear, when is Jesse Smollett's sentencing happening? I believe late in January, January 21st, something like that. Uh, I think the last the last time I heard. No, I don't expect a whole lot. I expect community service. I don't know about you, but that's how much faith I have in the justice system. Um, and in particularly with people who have, you know, the contacts that he had, uh, uh, Kamala Harris and the rest of them, I, I don't expect him to actually get the three years that he could get if he got a maximum sentence. Uh, Krista Esperval said pretty much all electronics are made there. If you mean in China, yes, they are. Um, and the thing is, that's the part that everybody knows. Like, everybody knows that if, you, if you're going to buy a TV, it was probably made in China. And even if it wasn't, it was made from parts that are like, you know, 90% made in China. And so everyone's kind of familiar with that. The part that's frightening for me is the dependence that we have for food and drug supplies. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing that you just, once you see it, it's like, wow, we're really in trouble. You know, Kyle DeFranco says, hey, they provide suicide nets. That's really warped. Um, okay. Um, okay, guys, I am going to go ahead and head out. Um, I love you guys. You're awesome. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And we will do it again next week because even though it'll be close to Christmas, it still won't be Christmas. Um, maybe we can do like a more uplifting topic, you know, more uplifting topics that, that week because, you know, it will be Christmas. If you have any uplifting topics, feel free to send them to me because, you know, there is a shortage of those. I don't know if you've noticed and looked around, but it's like, yeah, let's find the uplifting stuff and talk about that. Yeah, you can you can go to my website at you know thecrusadergal.com and go to the contact page and send any news that you want me to cover and I will look at it and I'll try not to disappoint. Anyway, and also thank you to those of you who donate to support the show. Um, I really do appreciate it always. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider helping to support it. You can give a one-time donation or buy a branded mug at thecrusadergal.com. Or you can donate monthly by searching for my name, Sarah Corrier, at Subscribestar. Thank you so much. I couldn't do this without your support. And whether you can help financially or not, don't forget to tell your friends. Big Tech isn't going to help me spread the word. Thank you.